Hello! Welcome to Pull to Open, an ongoing quest to watch all of Doctor Who in random order. I'm Chris Taylor. And I'm Pete Paschal. We're journalists who've written extensively about Doctor Who, fans from childhood, and we love to nerd out about this show. We just love it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in common with a lot of people, I think. I've got actually a lot of experience nerding out about this show <laughs> with various people. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I've done more nerding out about the show than I have watching the show. I think if you which is sort of if you look at the time we've been colleagues, the time we spent nerding out about Doctor Who versus talking about work, uh, yeah. probably what <laughs> probably greater than than the, well, than uh, than actually talking about work. Well, let me tell you, I'm 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 super excited to nerd out about this week's uh, show that we watched I as well, Inferno, uh, because it is I've I've been. Sort of a fan of Doctor Who since the late 70s, since since childhood. Impressive. And uh, had never seen this before. Wow. And, okay. I'm, and I'm kind of mad that I hadn't. I'm kind of mad that the BBC didn't show it again. Like, you know, the BBC didn't, like, re-show a lot of Pertwee episodes in my childhood. But they, they really should have shown this. Because this was... I, I think I would have dug this as a kid. Well, I did dig it as a kid. Um, I, uh, as I revealed last at the last pod, that um, I, I started with Peter Davison, but at the end of Davison's run, at the end of Caves of Androzani on the, my local PBS channel, um, the daily switched to John Pertwee, and mm. so this was early on in my run uh, of Doctor Who, and uh, I, I tell you, I was I was really riveted. And I was also, uh, what was also new in our household at the time was a VCR. Oh. And uh, so I've, I've actually seen this one a number of times, although I, I don't think I've seen it in about 30 years, maybe a little less. Like, it's been a long time since the last time I watched it. But I remember really digging it. Um, I remember some of the feelings I had. But I, I got to say, revisiting it, I was a little wary that, oh, is it going mm. to not age well? Is it going to seem cheesy? And I was very happy to to report like it's it's wow it holds up i i was really really into it um yeah spoiler alert we we both loved it yeah. um but let's talk a little bit about the podcast you've you've been doing some tiktoks oh yes this week yeah and uh we we went viral again yeah we had a great one so yeah just so everyone knows we are a podcast <laughs> in case you're countering this somewhere else uh, on the internet. In case you thought you were just hearing voices in your head. So uh, please subscribe uh, if you haven't already. Uh, but we also, we have a nice TikTok feed. It is pull to open, just straight up on TikTok, uh, where we take little excerpts from the show and put some of the footage uh, over it and uh, try to try to get some sort of the, the, the better commentary uh, and give it some visual aids. And it's super fun. Uh, we did a bunch from last uh, the last podcast, which was Pyramids of Mars, um, and one of them was clearly like spoke to I think to the audience, and I think it was you know uh, very clear why it was the the 1980 moment in Pyramids of Mars, which we don't have to recap uh, exactly, but it's it's very much like a, an iconic moment in the series, and uh, I think uh, people like really dug that it was there and was uh, uh, just sort of helped them relive that moment. Because uh, I think, like like we said, like you could see why that was a uh, a serious uh, uh, serious moment for the series, and sort of showing that. And um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was, it was yeah. Cool. I think that, I think what this tells us is that, that Doctor Who fans love to uh, love to talk about chronology, the chronology of the show, the chronology within the show, 
and uh, it kind of reminds me of the the London 1965 moment that went viral when people were watching the Hot oh, episodes on right. Twitch. Yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> London 1980. Um, so yeah, any any chance that we have to talk about the year that it takes place in? That's that's obviously what what Doctor Who fans want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so follow us there on TikTok. We're also on Instagram. Poltergram. Pult- open sixty three. Poltergram. Um, Poltergram. Poltergram. Man, that's that's our um, the podcast about the podcast uh, with all the, the, the photo- <laughs> photography from behind the scenes of us We're in doing our it. basements and microphones. We're doing it for the Poltergram. You betcha. Yeah. All right, Ooh. so let's get into it. Yeah, okay, uh, so I think we need further. to, you know, to save a little time on the recap, um, we're going to do, again, the uh, the timed recap, the time, well, timed and relative dimensioned in space recap, perhaps. Um, yep. So I did yep. it last time. I did it last time for Pyramids of Mars. So you have the privilege of doing it now for Inferno, and we've decided 30 seconds per episode, because this is like a seven-parter. This is actually the longest the last really long Doctor Who episode uh, of the classic yep. series. It's the last one with seven or more episodes. It's got seven, uh, which apparently the production team yeah. at the time did not didn't like. They, they they kind of inherited, for whatever reason, the the, the super long episodes. They didn't do them again after this uh, this season. Yeah, the BBC said seven episodes. The uh, Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks hated the seven episode structure, but they did it anyway. And as we'll get to, it kind of. You know, having that structure imposed on them kind of birthed some of the best aspects of of their show, and and perhaps some of the worst aspects of this otherwise very strong story. Um, yeah, it might. But we'll be, get to that. And it, it might be the only seven episode story that doesn't feel like seven episodes, or even yes. More. But certainly, <laughs> it doesn't feel like seven episodes. It's well, you know, when when you're rewatching it, like it's like you know, and re rewatch on BritBox. Thank you, BritBox. Mm-hmm. Please sponsor us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's only 22 minutes per episode, right? So that's not that long. You know, you stick it together. It's kind of like watching uh, a few episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, the modern binge-watching. It's not fine. so bad. Yeah. So if this is the longest that it get, gets, and it's not, you know, whenever we get to War Games, that'll be the longest. But it's it's nice to have kind of broken the seal on, on uh, seven episodes. Um, but let's set the scene. Okay. It's Pertwee's first season. Mm-hmm. It's the fourth story out of four for Pertwee's first season. Right. Um, which I'm always sort of amazed that it's that short. Um, it could have been... Uh, I, I love this sort of, you know, alternate universe, since we're going to be talking about alternate universes. It could have been the last ever Doctor Who story. That's true. Um, yeah, I guess the ratings weren't if super the viewing great figures, before. Yeah, the ratings were not great in Troughton's last season, and they had to completely reinvent the show with even less budget, um, but in color, with Pertwee, with action Doctor Who. You know, Pertwee was, was known as a comic actor in the UK, and he really wanted to sort of play against type and uh, be, be more of an action hero and do all of his stunts and his driving and so forth, and we see a lot of that here. Um but yeah, without without further ado, mm-hmm. let us let us get into what might have been the last episode ever, the last story ever. All right. Of Doctor Who. So are you ready with the timer? I'm ready with three minutes and thirty seconds on the clock, representing seven All episodes right. of thirty minutes each. We will And I've not prepared anything. 
I just yep. want to say I'm not reading from a script. I'm doing this live from my own recollection of just watching Inferno. So if you've not seen it and you want the the TLDW, which is still what I think we should call the segment, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm ready to go. All right. All right. TLDW for Inferno. Ready, set, and go. Okay. So there's this guy called Professor Stallman. Uh, he's kind of an asshole. But he's also a super genius, and he's drilling below the Earth's... He's drilling into the Earth's crust and wants to drill below the Earth's crust because there's something called Stallman's gas down there that's going to solve the energy crisis that hasn't happened yet because it's 1970. Um, But it's going to pre-solve the energy crisis. And Eunice has shown up to, I guess, provide security for the project. And the Doctor is there because Eunice... And he also wants to use the nuclear power that is right next to this project that's powering the drill or whatever to um, to power the TARDIS so that he can restart the TARDIS because the Time Lords have stranded him on Earth and he's been, I guess, trying to restart the TARDIS all season. And so he's taken the console out and stuck it in his hut and he's using nuclear power to try and fire it up so that he can, you know, move it in Two time and space 30. again. Um, and, uh, and, but instead he, the doctor goes to a parallel world where the drilling is slightly more advanced and Britain is fascist and Stallman's even more of an asshole. And, uh, as he sees in both worlds, uh, the gas or the green ooze is turning, uh, people on the project into primords, um, which these sort of primitive ape-like creatures with hairy hands and green skin. And uh, the Doctor sees the world explode in this other reality. Basically, he's, you know, the, the, the other world, the fascist Britain, is too far gone on the drilling. Um, and uh, all his friends are there, the Brigadier, Liz Shaw, but they're evil in this alternate universe. And uh, uh, the Doctor manages to escape. He can't escape with them, but he escapes just as the world is ending. Um, returns to the reality that we know um, and finds out that uh gosh i've got so much time uh, finds out that uh time can be changed in our reality and some of the things that he's seen happen in this other world where the drilling you know goes through the crust and and the world basically explodes and earthquakes and volcanoes um and he can stop that happen he stops it happening and then right at the end he tries to use the nuclear power one more time to power the TARDIS and to get away One minute. from the Brigadier, who he decides that he hates, but uh, but it actually only sends him uh, to the rubbish heap next to the project, and and he comes back with his tail between his legs, and the further adventures of the Doctor and Unit continue. Um, and there's there's a subplot with uh, a, uh, a drilling expert who's sort of uh, falls in love with the uh, the uh, with the woman named Petra on the project who's sort of Stallman's right hand woman and uh, and they they go off together um, and yeah that's about 20 it. seconds you want to <laughs> 20 seconds throw in anything else? and then we all have a also have a government government minister um, who's overseeing the project and and you know constantly is trying to st- shut Stallman down but Stallman shuts him down and he forestalls any kind of interference and he's sort of a a uh, contender for biggest asshole in the <laughs>
How would I do? Do you think I, I left anything major at that? No, you did great. And like, you know, like you say, it's it, it just shows how straightforward this story is and that mm. they don't overcomplicate it. Um, but they they sort of milk all those story beats to to maximum effect. Um, I think you did at one point say when you when you talked about him going off in the you said TARDIS and not just the TARDIS console. Uh, but I think mm. I think you might have clarified that later uh, with sort of like what what is going on with the Doctor's exile on Earth. Uh, but otherwise, no, yeah. great stuff. Um, yeah, and you you once you had extra time, you threw in the the stuff with Sutton and <laughs> everyone else. So. Uh, yeah, three minutes thirty seconds—a little long for this one. Could you could do it in two? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for those shorter recaps. I, I, <laughs> I think I can do it. But yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the TARDIS. We might as well get into that part mm-hmm. because the Doctor does actually call it the TARDIS. Right. Um, and it's kind of weird. I the first thing I was going to ask you, uh, as as our resident continuity nerd, and certainly you're you're more of a continuity note on the Pertwee era than I am this is a very fun unfamiliar territory for me is there's, there's no setup for this right we never see the doctor disassembling the TARDIS taking the no. console out um, no. it's just there it's just there and it's really weird and honestly you like I wasn't really a veteran of Doctor Who at the time so I wasn't sure like oh does he just do that no he actually doesn't do that and he's never done it before or since in terms of removing the console uh, from the TARDIS. Uh, so, if as a longtime Who person, um, I, I could definitely say like, "What?" Uh, and it's it it yes. brings up all sorts of questions. Um, <laughs> and it really does. One, How did he get it out? See, that's the first one. Like, it's. I mean, I know that yeah. the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental, but it's like the, the the doorway is a physical size, and you would he must have taken it out in parts or ex- did some magic expansion or it's, it's did he transport it it's, out of like you know he dematerialized the console from within the TARDIS and then have it materialize outside the TARDIS so 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 many questions about that uh, yeah if this was the modern era you would definitely have a scene where you know some burly chaps are sort of taking it out out of the front door of the TARDIS right. we don't even see the front door right we, we don't even see the TARDIS box itself um right uh, well, I think, according to the novelization, it's back at Unit HQ, and he's just, I guess, transported the console on the back of a flatbed truck. I guess so it doesn't fit in Bessie either. Yeah, and well, you, yeah, it, it's he, it's just it just sort of is there. Um, you you kind of have to wonder, it... like like you know, the power involved in doing anything with the TARDIS. Like, I yeah. guess, you know, nuclear power, I mean, I guess, you know, he has siphons a bit of it from the um, from the power plant there. But you kind of have to wonder, like, well, wait a minute, like, he, 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 like as they, they didn't have this earlier on, but they the, the TARDIS's power source is very mysterious. But later on, they're like established things like black holes and mm. and the eye of harmony, like obviously these these incredible energies you would need to casually penetrate, you know, time as a, as a thing to travel. Um and they're they're kind of absent, you know, clearly here, uh, and you're you know, so you kind of wonder like, well, how did that even work? And and obviously they haven't. There's a lot of things about this episode, including this, that are never really addressed later. Um, and it's so weird. At yeah, the end, uh, he like goes off on his own. He's like, I'm gonna leave, 
well, do you want, you're going to pick up the police box? I mean, like, I, you just take, like, like, he's going to go adventuring now just with the console, I guess. I don't know. It's never really clear. Obviously, it doesn't I mean, happen, but. Hey, if, if, if Clara can just go adventuring in a diner, I, I'm sure the doctor can just show up in a console and maybe he can disguise it as a chair or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so. It has its own chameleon circuitry. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. But he, well, the other thing. He does refer to it as the TARDIS. Which right. is weird. In in within Inferno, he refers to the console as the TARDIS, uh, which is not just BBC budget cuts. Like he really thinks that this is the TARDIS itself. Yeah, um, which which is really which good. Is weird. Uh, you know, like that that's clearly the heart of the TARDIS somehow. Like the console, yeah. like it's the CPU of the whole thing. Once you remove the console, you're you know that the rest is just a vehicle. I guess is that's that's the strong implication, which. That might be contradicted yeah. somewhat by other things later in the series, but that's clearly what he's trying to say here. Yeah, as a, as a fan of the new show, and particularly of, of the Doctor's wife, I've got to wonder, you know, is is the spirit of the TARDIS Idris, is she, is she there in the console? Is that is that really what's what's happening here? Maybe, you know, headcanon is if he, if he takes off with the console by itself, she becomes human a lot earlier, and uh, they... They run off together, the doctor and his wife. <laughs> I'd have to think, yes. Well, that's that's an interesting spinoff series you could yeah you could think about in the like speaking of parallel worlds. That would be a fun one. The other thing I noticed, <laughs> like doctor when, when he leaves it. with the console or tries to dematerialize, like he he isn't even really strapped in. Like there's nothing attaching yeah. him to the console. And if you look at that first scene where he sort of does the the trial run, where he he doesn't actually in the first attempt to go cross over. To the other world, um, he he actually lets go at one point. Yeah. Like he like flies off. Like and you're kind of like what 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 just happened? And uh, you know this it's glossed over. It's just clearly just done for effect. But it got me wondering like well what See, if he just let go and is he just lost forever in the head, vortex and the the console just goes where it's going? Head cannon. That is that is you know the psychic connection that the TARDIS has to him. Like she's got a hold of him. You know, it's she ran away with him. Well, clearly there's and, a there's a psychic uh, so, connection with the car too, because it just goes over for no yeah. reason as well. Like Bessie just <laughs> arrives in the other world. Uh, what are we going to call is, this other world, by the way, Chris? Weird. What what should we call it? Is, so, we could just call it Inferno World, but Inf- yes, Inferno World, uh, alternate world, the darkest timeline, fascist um, Britain world, fascist Britain. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Stallman we, we with two N world. We... <laughs> <laughs> Stallman with an extra A. Um, no, it's well. It, we should before we leave the console, mm-hmm. we should mention that this is the last appearance of oh. the very first TARDIS console. That is true. It's the and, original prop, and it's so sad. It's so sad, but so appropriate that it ends up on a trash heap off screen. <laughs> Which is kind of a, a metaphor for the BBC and how it treated Doctor Who in 1970, and it was just wiping over old episodes willy nilly, and just you know throw the the old Hartnell console in the trash when you could sell it in eBay on eBay in the future for many millions of dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And um, um, actually, I don't know the background of every single missing episode, but I believe most of them, like most of the Pertree ones, were part like they didn't really like most of the stuff was missing up until sometime late in Pertwee's era or Tom Baker's and like the Pertwee ones were more easily recovered I believe 
Um, yes, and in fact, I think I read that Inferno was recovered from from Canada. Oh yeah, from the Canadian yeah, broadcast. CBC was probably doing it. Um, yeah, so thank you, Canada. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because there's still a few episodes within Pertwee's first season, first couple of seasons, where only like complete black and white versions exist. Um, even though I'm not sure if all of them were, but most of them were, were definitely done in color. Um, and this one, luckily, like we got the full the full color version of it, which um, well, has like the prime wards and we- their greenish menace and the green <laughs> goop uh, is referred to a lot so um you know it's obviously and you get those red hues when the volcanoes and stuff start happening i think it's really really uh effective use of color on this one well you know Pete, we, we are speaking in the week when when zach snyder's justice league was released uh in in its four three aspect ratio to preserve the director's original artistic intent um but also released in a black and white version so wow. black and white is cool again, and I think that they should re-release all of the Pertwee episodes that were also shot in black and white, uh, also screened in black and white in in black and white, and we can we can have you know sort of cool noir Doctor Who as an option. <laughs> well, I actually would love them in widescreen. So yeah, <laughs> this one this seems very cinematic to me. I, I really liked the the direction, the pacing. You you know, there's interesting backstory with the director and the producer so the director douglas camfield actually had a heart attack um during the filming and i think he only did like two or three of the episodes uh, as a director yeah and the producer barry letts who had been a director uh or at least had had some skill there stepped in to finish it off and i, I couldn't quite tell um I, I sort of went back and reviewed some some stuff um and i think there's a that you can sort of tell by there's a few more cinematic moments, I'd say, in the first couple of episodes. Like, for example, when the the first Primord, uh, Slocum, who is the first one infected with the green ooze, starts hammering mm. away sort of in this very you know bloodthirsty and brutal way on um, another technician. And it cuts to uh, basically someone hammering a nail into a wall, which was kind of mm. one of those interesting fun uh transitions and there's there's a few of them later but i think i think though that's very camfield i think because he was very much a you know a a very experienced director did you know those sort of cinematic moments um yeah apparently he he really wanted to be like a very artsy director but he got sort of trapped in the action genre um which is like you know and uh yeah action and art are absolutely you can do it uh, like John Wu, I think, and, and a lot of Hong Kong action directors took, you know, uh, the, the art to, to another level on action. And you can sort of see like today, like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things you can do, uh, artistic with, with action, I think. And, um, you see, you see certain hints of it here. Obviously it's 1970s, there's Doctor Who, they're making it for $5 an episode, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's coming through. Uh, it's very well paced. He he makes he makes a lot of use of very minimal um, budget in this. Like there's very minimal number of scenes and a lot of outdoor shooting and kind of the, the same location, which I believe was an oil refinery in in Kent, right uh, near the town of Who H O O, which is very appropriate. Um, is that the one that Horton it, heard? 
Yeah, Horton definitely heard this who. Um, uh, he heard who in who. Um, uh, but it, it's 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 a very British, very seventies, very industrial location. Like I could, yeah, I could feel the the frostbitten winds and the just kind of smell the industrial nastiness and it's it, it just yes it took me back to britain in the 70s and how grim and industrial everything felt well and there's there's um, so much shot on location here like they they use that mac to the max and i i think there's some commentary and it really was nasty like apparently there was no bathroom yeah. and you know it was just really like like you say it was cold and uh, dirty and you know but they they used it a lot and a lot of those stunts uh pertwee you know obviously insisted on doing them himself and they probably were like sure man we can't afford a stunt man anyway um but <laughs> like he apparently was afraid of heights and there's a, a number of scenes yeah. where they're up on the ladders they're on the top of these oil tanks or these chemical tanks and there's there's lots of you know there's lots of action there's struggles there's there's a point where there's a big stunt where people are are falling there's a couple of them where people like bodies fall off these high railings and and Pertry was actually like afraid of heights so you know points to him on yeah coming it through. was one of the stunts yeah he's he's ninety foot high at one point and and one of the stunts was was ninety foot fall and that was the highest fall uh, I think in in on British TV uh, that it had been done until that point. And one of the stuntmen ended up in the hospital in a different scene because Pertwee throws him off the car. Yeah, yeah. There was a... Uh, and he ends up in the hospital like 18 stitches. You got... So this this was real. Yeah, you could... This, you can you can feel the grittiness of this episode. You could almost say, like, if it had a different outcome, if it had less... was wasn't as good, if the result wasn't as good, you might even say it was the cursed episode. But uh, no, it's like <laughs> they, they paid for it and it um, it really came through. I mean, the stunts are good. They still hold up. Uh, the story's very good, um, uh, and I got to say, Pertwee's outfit—he's uh, obviously known as the the James Bond, the fancy dress doctor. I mean, it's it's very on here. He sort of after this episode and subsequent seasons, he was more dinner jacket. I mean, he was still very very posh, mm. but I think these early episodes, he had the whole cape and the tuxedo, and to see him again. Um, after years I've not watched a Pertwee episode to see that, that full dinner, dinner, well, the full tuxedo regalia climbing these ladders. And it's that the, the contrast with the actual setting was, um, you know, works. It's just like, Oh wow. Like he's, he's sort of, <laughs> he's definitely like the, the, the sticking out like a sore thumb in this place. Yeah. The, the Cape is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's got that red lining, and it definitely, um, you know, you can you can see the the homage of uh, Capaldi's uh, coat yes. with with the red lining, right? Uh, definitely puts you in mind of that. It's very actiony, but yeah, he's he's super well dressed throughout. He's got a, a vel- I be- believe it's a black velvet uh, dinner jacket, and the the most British thing about this is that even when it's the end of the world. And it's supposed to be super hot, and there are volcanoes everywhere, and they're all talking about how they're they're dying of heat exhaustion. He still doesn't take his jacket off. Right. Yeah. He's it's it's very mad dogs and Englishmen. Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh my goodness. It's there's so many British things about this which we can get into. Yeah. Well, maybe he's um, got some of that Time Lord air conditioning unit. I I don't know <laughs> underneath, or maybe he just likes it. Who knows? Maybe he's he's part pride yeah. lord. 
but yeah. yeah well you know it's, it's the british thing you know you, you drink hot tea in the sun to make yourself sweat so you you keep your velvet uh dinner jacket on to to make yourself sweat even more and then you cool yourself down well speaking of fashion uh i gotta say <laughs> sutton's ascot <laughs> that, yes. that that ascot should have its own series uh he walks so in we, we should talk yeah we should talk a little bit about Sutton first. We sure. should introduce them as the, the the actor was, uh, you know, in the very first Doctor Who story in an earthly child. Yes, he's one of the cavemen. Plays Zah. He's, he's, he's one, of the, of, one bit... of the main cavemen. Yes, yeah. he is Zah. Uh, back in the days when Doctor Who characters had only one syllable, that's all <laughs> they could afford. Um, but he he he's kind of an unreconstructed caveman when when he comes in. On this, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because the the first thing he does is kind of hits on Doctor Petra, mm-hmm. um, who is yeah. Solomon's right hand woman on the project, and uh, and she rebuffs him, which is which is good and probably easy to do since the the uh, actress was the wife of the director. Right. I mean, how <laughs> how hard is it if you're an actor to come on set and hit on the director's wife? In front of the camera, right. So, yeah. it's he does that. It's it's sort of the most unreconstructed, you know, hashtag Me Too incident in probably in all of Doctor Who history. It could be. Uh, um, I would say there's there's definitely. I, th- I would argue there's a couple moments, at least one or two, that it might be even worse in this episode. So it is not. <laughs> there are moments that have not aged well, and um, the, yeah. the sexist uh, sort of culture of the 1960s, uh, early 70s definitely comes through i gotta say i when i saw this as a kid i thought sutton was so cool and not necessarily because he he hits on the girl as soon as he walks in uh which was definitely a trope well into the 80s um Mm. it's because he's just he's very much sure of himself he's very confident he's clearly the guy who's come in there with the pragmatic point of view around all these bureaucrats uh or ineffective people and he's the guy who gets things done. Well, and I think that still works. And I think that aspect of his character holds up. But you definitely believe him as a character. Like he's he's the oil rig expert. Yes. He's he's basically um, Bruce Willis from and, Armageddon thrown into this, but you know, regressed <laughs> about twenty years and made British. Yeah. And he's sort of his hard nosed attitude goes up very nicely against Stallman's complete asshole attitude. Oh yeah, and we can't say enough about that, but just to sort of um, punctuate the, the 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 Me Too moments. So there are a couple of moments where Liz isn't treated very well early on. And the doctor yep. even at one point tells her, don't ask questions. Please just do what yes. I say. And I just thought, oh, that, that honestly was the cringiest moment. Because, you know, like I think he, the other stuff... Doesn't he even add... He, I think he says, "There's a good girl." Or yeah, something. it's kind of this kind of condescending language, and you—that oh is gosh. probably the uh, to me that was the line that that aged the worst. And you, you know, then she puts up with it, you know. And I guess you could say she puts up with it because mm. he's the doctor, and and you know they they have a, a special relationship and all that. But yeah, I'm just I'm just like, come on. Now, luckily, luckily, Liz is a very good character. Uh, Caroline John was was great in the part, um, and I've got to say. I've, I gotta say, seeing her again, I hadn't seen a Caroline John Liz Shaw episode in quite some time. I'm definitely more, uh, shall we say, Liz curious than I used to be. Um, <laughs> she she's in her you know sixties, seventies mini skirts. Um, she's uh, she's very uh, on it, 
in many ways. I don't know. She, I thought she was she was great in both universes, uh, but she redeems herself later on at the end, where the do- the brigadier kind of goes like, when the doctor comes back and he's sort of he's unconscious in a coma, he goes, "Well, I'll get a doctor." And he she goes, "I happen to be a doctor, brigadier." You know, like, it's like yes. okay, you forget I am a doctor, and and when he reminds her that that she's an employee of Eunice. He, she, she sasses him back. She's like, not, she's not afraid of the brigadier in the slightest. Yeah. Um, which is fantastic. But yeah, I think that this is Lishaw's last episode. Oh, um, so sad. She doesn't get a farewell. She just, you know, Caroline John was pregnant and therefore went off uh, between seasons. And we get, we get Joe Grant in the next season. Um, but yeah, my, my headcanon is now that she just kind of you know didn't want to put up with the sexist bullshit anymore right and and goes back to cambridge yeah good for her um but i do think like she had four <laughs> stories i'd wish she had stayed on a little longer now joe you know we could get to her when we talk about um uh some episodes with her but she she takes a little while to get used to i think joe does um and i kind of mm. wish we had maybe one more season of of liz or maybe even half a season um, before before sort of switching things up entirely. But um, this is definitely a great one for her. I mean, she, again, like was, as fascist Liz, she's clearly having a great time along with every other um, character. And her character, I think, more than the others, sort of has plays that sort of straddles the two, the good and the evil in the character really, really well in uh, Inferno World. Yeah. And uh, so in, in, in our world, she's a scientist. And then in Inferno World, she's in the military. Um, but kind of redeems herself by by shooting the evil brigadier at the end. Uh, we should mention that she has probably one of the worst wigs yeah, true. in Doctor Who <laughs> as evil Liz. Yeah, uh, it's terrible. Yeah, she's not well and served she's by got it. This sort of... um, I don't know. Like, I feel like the dark hair works, but it's very like they they clearly just tucked everything under and put this mop on yeah. it, and yeah, it doesn't it doesn't quite work. Um, it looks like a parody of a Beatles haircut. Yeah, exactly. I will say both worlds. What I liked about it is she clearly has an instant connection with the Doctor. Like in the in the Infernal World, mm-hmm. like that. There's something about his relationship with her that transfers over in sort of both universes, and so that's how she could kind of sort of gradually win her over. Like she respects his intellect, uh, and uh, maybe that's inherent to her being sort of a scientist or have scientist scientific aspirations in both worlds. Yeah, and so yeah. so personally, I should, on on a personal note with with Liz Shaw, so my my dad was a big fan of the Pertwee era. Um, I, I Troughton was his favorite Doctor. That was very much his. Right, like he he started was watching him. it from the early sixties. Started, you know, then loved Troughton, uh, but really kind of had a fondness for Pertwee. And, and growing up with Tom Baker, I would often get the well, he isn't as good as Pertwee, <laughs> you know, response from my dad. And specifically, I, I think like we, you know, the BBC may have shown a few Joe Grant episodes and then my dad would be like, oh, well, she's not as good as Liz Shaw, which I hadn't seen any Liz Shaw episodes, didn't know anything about her, um, but sort of had this, she had this mythic quality because my my dad would, would rhapsodize about what a good character she was and how much more intelligent she was. And uh, it takes a while yeah, before it, the doctor gets someone who's kind of his equivalent again. And I would yeah. argue it would probably be until Romana. Even though Sarah Jane is very, very good, you don't get quite the same, um, can go reasonably go toe-to-toe, believably go toe-to-toe with the Doctor um, 
in in terms of his innovation and his mind uh and yeah yeah, liz liz definitely has that in space which shows that we're we're very much in the era of of women's lib you know uh, as much of a thing in the uk as it was in the us probably more so in the us but but definitely you know uh, I, I think even <laughs> does does the uh, the our oil drilling guy he, he mentions it at one point, I believe, or, or maybe I'm thinking of the novelization. But you know, it's it's in the air, mm-hmm. um, and it it makes the the treatment of Petra you know that that much more outrageous. They kind of they kind of knew this was wrong, but then again, they're sort of showing how workplaces really were. So yeah. You know, points to Doctor Who for for being a little bit feminist, I guess. What did you think of the message of the 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 serial? Like, obviously, there's the environmental message that's front and center. Mm. Um, I liked that it wasn't just this environmental message, like, oh yeah, let's not over overmine the earth or, or stress the earth for greed or progress. Um, but it also has this sort of government complicity angle where, you yeah. know, Stallman has, in our world, has clearly gotten the backing of the the government. And they're kind of like, you know, it's kind of like this somewhat feckless kind of ineffective government in terms of its oversight responsibilities going like shrugging. Well, he's the expert. Like, let him do it. And of course, <laughs> like he could go ahead and do whatever he wants because he's promised us something awesome. Which, by the way, I'm just going to say, like, wh- how did this get approved exactly? Like, uh, he's, he's talking about, like, okay, there's Stallman's gas under the crust, and we're going to get it. All we have to do is mine 20 miles or whatever. Like, and it, did anyone go, like, what's your evidence? Like, where is this gas? Like, yeah. do you have any of this gas? Could we see the gas? He's hypothesized it, and he's a white man who, you know, talks very arrogantly, therefore let's give him money. Right. Um, it's it's interesting because as as a Brit in the early 70s, you would hear Stallman's gas, and you would, you would definitely think of North Sea gas. Right, right. Uh, where the, the drilling was very much uh, on everyone's minds, and the uh, the bounty of, of, of North Sea oil was, was just starting to seep in. To British culture, we wouldn't really get it until the, the late seventies, but definitely on on everyone's mind. We didn't yet have the energy crisis, but I think you know a lot of people were prophesying that it was coming, and we couldn't we couldn't keep going, we couldn't keep supplying electricity. Uh, the, the undercurrent of, of all of this is the industrial action in in the late sixties, early seventies. There was a lot of that, and we're just three years away from the miners' strike, which would plunge Britain into the three day week. And, you know, power outages and all of that. So, you know, I, I can see the British government kind of panicking and saying, yeah, you know, let, let's just this guy says he can bring us energy from under the Earth's crust. Let's let's do it. Um, never mind the green ooze that appears to be leaking out of the Earth's crust. Uh, I can totally see that. But but Stallman is like he is the ultimate scientist asshole. I yeah, think he's if if Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park were just like less of a people person mm-hmm, he, would, mm-hmm, he would be stallman he's sort of he's sort of the the trumpian equivalent of of richard's character it's you know he is the ultimate embodiment of you know you are so preoccupied with whether you could that you didn't think about whether you should a hundred percent just he he should he definitely should he's all about should. so stallman is played by an actor named olaf pooley 
And I yes. cannot say enough good things about his performance because he is just the guy you love to hate. And I think he is such a good villain in this story because he's so believable. Uh, we've all yeah. worked with or for, unfortunately, a guy like this. Uh, maybe less so today here, looking back in 2021, where now everything is kind of a little more touchy-feely and letting it hang out. But I've definitely worked for people like this. And Well, he's he's the ultimate, he's, he's the put-down artist, right? He's yes. got a put-down for everyone. He's, you know, the, the government official, uh, you know, Sir Marcus Gold, I, th- I think it is. Keith, uh, Sir Keith Gold. Keith Go- yeah. Sir Keith Gold, I'm sorry. I'm getting confused with Marcus Stallman, who's in the Pyramids of Mars. But uh, Sir Keith Gold, uh, you know, he puts him down with, like, shouldn't you be running the cafeteria? Oh, yes, that line. Uh, and I think it actually comes as early as episode one. It is some of the most yeah. belittling dialogue I think I have ever, ever put, that has ever been put to page. And it just comes off uh, Stallman, the actor's the lips, perfectly. And you're just like, whoa, like, right off the get-go, you you just love to hate this guy. You just like I want to see this guy taken down. And of course, he very quickly butts heads with the doctor, and mm. you you rarely see the doctor get so agitated. He actually calls him like a nitwit at one point. Um, he is very much like does not like Stallman from the get go, and they uh, you know he gets under the doctor's skin in some in ways even I think the master can't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very, very yeah. Good. We're, we're one episode away from seeing the master, and, and you can sort of see the Stallman as as a as a proto master in in a lot of ways because he's just got that kind of complete air of superiority. Uh, I, I think you know in in a documentary about this how this was made, Nick Courtney notes the uh, you know the, the name of the actor Olaf is very close to aloof. And right, he's kind of so perfect for the role for that reason. He's so aloof. So looks down at everyone, has the perfect put down, you know, completely unflappable in in the sense that he's completely in a flap the whole time anyway. But his insults land, they put everyone down. Even the doctor kind of respects his scientific acumen. Right. Um, But he's got this sort of, you know, libertarian entrepreneurial approach. Like these days, he'd be a kind of an Elon Musk character. Right. Like, you know, get out of my face, government bureaucrats. You know, none of you understand. This is about the science. Uh, if I had to go at your pace, we'll never get this done. You know, he's driven. Yeah. So you kind of respect that. And, um, you know, we, we, we've got lots of reasons why why the TARDIS randomizer might have brought us here. Uh, a, a kind of a spooky number of reasons, actually. But this is, this is the first, is that, you know, we compare Marcus Scarman from... Um, from Perez and Mars to, to Professor Stallman. You know, v- very similar names. Mm-hmm. Complete polar opposites in terms of Doctor Who villains. Right. Like, Scarman is, is mind-controlled from also almost the first uh, moment where he enters the Egyptian tomb and is kind of a flat villain because right. of it. I mean, they're, they're both extremely one-dimensional characters. <laughs> we should say that. Yes. Uh, you know, like, they both just are very single-minded even if Stallman isn't mind-controlled. Um, but Stallman just doesn't feel one-dimensional. Like, you, you you genuinely feel that this is just who he is. This is his life. He eats, breathes, and sleeps work, and he's probably going to drive himself into a heart attack like the director did. He, and it's kind of an interesting uh, fact that the director did have a heart attack on set because he was so driven. Yeah. 
kind of worked himself into the ground because Stallman is is that too. So it's an interesting uh, marriage of director and character. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, uh, like you say, Scarman, he's scary, but he's not really that memorable uh, because he's so mind-controlled and just a little bit zombie-like throughout. And then Stallman is very, very, very memorable. He's so memorable and effective. Uh, I think what happens when he essentially goes full Primord, the story kind of loses something. Um, And it's so refreshing to have that conflict resurrected in Episode 7 when they come back to the, the real world. Um, because yeah, once... we, we have two Stallmans, yeah. so you can throw one away. Yeah, once he becomes full Primord in, in Inferno Earth, he uh, he has a couple scary moments as a Primord, and I think the scariest one, he hasn't gone full Primord yet, but when he, it's one of the honestly grossest, most terrifying moments in the whole series where he grabs unconscious technicians and he dunks their faces in the, the green yes. goop. I honestly almost had to look away because I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> like... And it's it's horrific, like because we know what it does to people. We know it's scorching, um, and even though the effect, you know, like I mean, it's it's really literally they're putting just an actor in some jello. Uh, you know, it's it's yeah. not it's not really much of anything as an effect. It's just the moment is so uh, heart wrenching, and then that's kind of like then he's kind of full Wolfman, and then there's they have to fight the Primords, and of course they they kind of need that. Other story isn't really that interesting, um, but it it it's definitely less interesting once that character isn't in anymore. And so, um, yeah, it's very, very... We, we, so he, he starts his primal transformation kind of early. Um, and, we you know, he puts white gloves on to cover up the fact right. that his hands have gone green. But it's not even that they've gone fully green. It is... It reminds me a lot of uh, in primary school in the UK, you know, you'd have watercolours... You play with watercolors, and you'd end up with kind of watercolor paint all over your hands. <laughs> right. That's the special effect here. Yeah, true, true. It's taped on. <laughs> In fact, I think fur. we had that exact shade oh. of green. It's like this sort of sickly dark green. Uh, it just, yeah, it reminded me very much of my hands as a kid. So I love. Yeah, that definitely more effective, but it was on the face because it just—it definitely looks like the people are are ill when they have it all over their face. They mm. went all out on the uh, the makeup for those various uh, sort of half primord folks. It's really scary. I got to say to talk a little bit more about the primords and uh, mm. I, I would say argue this is the most effective zombie horror Doctor Who has ever done because um, they're really like frightening by sort of what they can do uh, and that there's, you're so easily sort of transformed. All they have to do is touch you. Uh, they have sort of this super strength. They're clearly sort of mindless, but not entirely mindless. One of the most interesting things that's never really answered in the show is while Stallman's transforming, how much of his behavior is influenced by him becoming this this you know subhuman beast, uh, and how much is is really just him being a dick? Because um, <laughs> it's it's very hard to tell. It's the question of our well, times. <laughs> and I will say this is the thing that kind of haunts me a little bit uh, from the episode is that in the in the real world. He forces everyone out of the drill head at, at the very end mm. and says, everyone get out of here. He wants to be in there alone. And I, I kind of almost feel like that's his moment of redemption and that the real Stallman's kind of trying to fight through the, the influence and he's trying to save everybody, um, even though he can't help himself, but sort of try to like, you know, it's like, like sort of a vampire that needs blood or an addict. He needs to sort of complete this and release Stallman's gas. For some reason, there's, a, there's yeah, an element th- of humanity that sort of wants... 
him not to succeed. I don't know. What did you think? I think I think that's just my my take on that is he's just you know he's he's casting people aside. He has his sort of et tu Petra moment, um, which he really should have said et tu and not you also, <laughs> uh, Petra. Um, and and then he's like you know non you're all assholes. I've I've uh, can obviously only do this by myself. Again, very Trumpian. He's like yeah, I alone right. can fix this. And and he rushes in, and he he has a like he has the largest name tag on on his uh, right. his suit <laughs> that I think I've ever seen anyone have. His giant Stallman name tag uh, when when he goes in there, it's fantastic. But yeah, the Primords are never named mm-hmm. in in the show. We only know that they're called Primords from the credits. Um, they're not even named in the Target novelization that Terrence sticks. What did. do they call them? They're, they're just sort of, he just, he mentions that they're primal beasts right. or something like that. He doesn't. Just beast creatures. You know, he just, something, something almost primitive about the man's bulky, broad-shouldered body. Um, hmm. Yeah. They definitely put yeah, in some, some just, cheap kind of like hunchback stuff in, like just like stuff yeah. the shoulders of, of the, the, the extras and the actors who did them, uh, which doesn't quite work. Yeah. I wish they had done that a little better because it's so obvious. I think is it is it Benton's character that that goes very when when Benton transforms into a primord he's he's very Richard the Third. Yeah, well that works. I mean, I, and I thought the the, the yeah. actual makeup of the primords is quite good, and the the Benton transformation um, again is one of those really scary moments where it, it happens very quickly, and he's he's full Wolfman uh, in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that's very very interesting. I mean, you know, one of the scariest things about zombies and monsters like them is that you can become one of them and seeing that process sort of happen particularly to a sort of quote-unquote main character i mean it's kind of like a guest character at this time but you know everyone loves benton um yeah very effective it's one of the fun things you can always do when you go to the parallel world you can start sort of killing off your regulars and not have to worry too much about (laughs) keeping them in uh for the next story it's uh you know you you're kind of obligated it, when you do a parallel world you gotta you gotta kill off someone major it's it's kind of sad because because benton doesn't really change between the worlds he's the only one who doesn't change really <laughs> he's just benton he's benton in every universe like you know the brigadier gets evil he gets a scar and an eye patch which we'll get to uh lishaw gets her beetle's haircut and Benton is just Benton. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think he's very much a bigger dick <laughs> in, in Furrow yeah. Earth. Well, you'd have to be. Uh, you'd have to be to get on in fascist Britain. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely figured out how to do it. Uh, but he doesn't get a different wig. That's true. He's just you know same outfit pretty much, just with the RSF on the on the side. Uh, he gets a different. They get different weapons. I think they get these interesting sort of Russian uh, rifles. I was reading for uh, Inferno Earth. It's really cool because it shows that they sort of thought about it, right? Like what how, what mm. would be sort of subtly different, what wouldn't be in the differences between the two worlds. I like that in the Doctor, the, the Doctor's hut is full of books in his world and then it's it's just like, you know, filing cabinets and stuff in, in Inferno Earth. Um, they get rid of the books. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, well, it's, it's that's like, that's what I like about they They really... They weren't lazy about it, you know? They weren't like, eh, who's going to notice? Eh, maybe just straighten the books for the other thing. Next time. No, like, this is, you know, it's it's, it's yeah, almost... they would have burned the books. Exactly, right? Like, it's it's there's definitely a, a, a subtle message going on there, I think, with, with a lot of it. So let's let's talk about alternate fascist Britain. Let's. 
Uh, yes, which is obviously modelled on 1984. You know, unity is strength is the slogan that's up in the Doctor's no heart. That's his first tip-off that, um, that that he's in this alternate fascist world. And we we get a little bit of dialogue that explains... First of all, we, we get the, the BBC... What is he? The, the head of creative... Uh, the, the head of special effects of the BBC right. is the the Big Brother figure. Yeah, yeah. he's just he definitely in the looks the part. On every wall. There's a, there's an yeah. interesting side note. The funny, um, funny side note that in fiction, sorry, in in the novels, apparently they say that I haven't read this, but they say that that person is the alternate, that the Inferno Earth's version of the Doctor. So the Doctor rules uh, fascist Britain in in Inferno World. He does look a little bit doctoresque. He's he's kind of uh, Peter Cushing doctor almost. Yeah. Well, who um, knows? Maybe we now with uh, post future of the Jadoon, maybe it really was the doctor. You know? Yeah, I love it. The, the head cannon could go in all sorts of directions, but the um, we we have so the doctor sees the, the this image. He sees unity of strength. He sees the logo of of this future fascist Britain, which is arrows pointing in all directions, right. which is. Perhaps not the best thought through fascist logo ever ever created. Well, I also, especially since like, well, I would see it on those doors, and I was like, "Is that telling me how to open the door? Do I like <laughs> pull it in three different ways to open this thing? Like, what what does that mean?" But yeah. yeah, interesting choice. Yeah, they're not pulling in all directions in in this fascist Britain. So um, we we get a little bit of dialogue that I think uh, we we hear that the the switch happened in 1943. Okay. That, right. That's yeah. where fascist Britain starts, so, and they get rid of the royal family, and the doctor reminisces about meeting the queen's great grandfather. Um, not sure exactly who she's who he's referring to. I guess that would be Edward the Seventh, who's sort of famously louche, and the doctor apparently hung out with him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, in the novelization, it gets in a bit deeper, and the doctor deduces from what he learns. That what happens is Britain just didn't enter uh, World War Two, which is very you know kind of chilling because of course that nearly happened. It very nearly happened that we had, um, you know, that we sort of surrendered to Hitler preemptively. Um, you know, the Lord Halifax and the the anti-Churchill contingent in the cabinet in 1940 were all. Like, yeah, you know, we, we can't face the Nazi menace. Let's just give in. Let's just make our peace. Gotcha. And then Pro appeasement. In, in the target novelization. Yeah. yeah, it's total appeasement. And in the target novelization, uh, the doctor's like, well, they, then that must have given aid and comfort to the British fascists. You know, the Oswald Mosley types who who then just had a coup. Right. Seize power. Um, Interesting. And we're, yeah, and we're, we're told that this... This fascist Britain is Republican, so they've gotten rid of the royal family. But what we know now, more than we knew in 1970, I think, is that that wasn't that wouldn't even be necessary. Mm-hmm. You don't even need to get rid of Britain's natural natural royalism and love of the royal family, uh, because Edward VIII, you know, the the Duke of Windsor, was super fascist himself. He was a he was a big fan of Hitler, and it was definitely part of Hitler's plan. If if he had actually conquered Britain, to bring back Edward the Eighth, interesting, and and let him rule as a as a, sort of uh, a puppet you know, dictator, puppet yeah. monarch, yeah, 
So, yeah, kind of chilling for that reason. And I think another reason why the TARDIS randomizer brought us here is, you know, republicanism in Britain is is being discussed again in the, the wake of the, the Meghan Markle right. and Prince Harry interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like we're, we're at a sort of a high point for getting rid of the royal family in Britain. Uh, but also Britain is, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's getting fascist, but certainly... Uh, Boris Johnson's government is exhibiting certain aspects of, you know, lying through its teeth. And, uh, we, you know, we learned this week that they're going to make all government buildings fly Union Jacks uh, oh, constantly throughout the week, which is not a thing in Britain. I know it's a thing in the U.S. that, you know, you fly the U.S. flag. U.S. flag is seen much more often uh, in, in daily life. In Britain, it's sort of seen as a bit kind of extreme right wing to do that. Hmm. So, yeah, these are scary times, for real, and this was a super interesting and chilling moment to watch Inferno for that reason, so definitely holds up. That doesn't mean Rose is extreme right-wing, right? Because she loved that Union Jack, <laughs> like, tank top or something. Oh, yeah. Um, Wearing it as a t-shirt is fine. <laughs> a t-shirt different. It's a different thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I um, can't speak to much of the politics, though. I kind of got the sense that, that when they said... That uh, and he says it with such anger when the brigade leader says executed all of them. Like he just sort of says, "Yeah, we killed the royal family." Like uh, half proud, half like it's it's like a, yeah, we did it. You know, like when you challenge a child of like mm. uh, about something bad they did, and they sort of instead sort of surprise you instead of responding with shame with with sort of pride and defiance. Um, so I got that to mean for a, a 1970s audience in, in Britain that this is the level of, you know, assholeism that we're dealing with here. They're, they're really this evil, um, that they've not only taken yeah. away, you know, the royal institution, they've done it with sort of pride and defiance. And I would think for the, the audience, that would, that would they'd, a lot of the audience would react with revulsion, uh, which is what they were sort of yeah. like trying to go for there. Um, Never mind the eye patch and the scar. This is what makes them really evil. They killed the royal family. Right. And it said, the way he said it says, just says all of them. Like, like we even got, like, and the implication there, if you think about it even a little bit, is like, wow, the kids too. Um, yeah. You know, that would have to be. That definitely would have made people think of the uh, execution of the Russian royal family. Yes. Yes. You know, which only, only Anastasia supposedly survived. Um, so, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, with, within living memory for most of the audience, the the threat of fascism from World War Two and the threat of fascism in Britain. Yeah. Um, there is a scene that was broadcast uh, over this side of the pond where John Pertwee does a radio voice that's basically supposed to be Lord Haw-Haw, mm -hmm. uh, William Joyce, the, the famous propagandist. British propagandist who was, who was broadcasting from Berlin throughout World War II. Um, it was cut from, from the British version because it's so obviously Pertwee and it's obviously one of Pertwee's silly voices. Uh, but I guess they felt in America that you, you wouldn't recognize that. And I didn't. I remember seeing that scene um, <laughs> it, where they're sort of leaning over the radio and they talk about like, oh, there's eruptions everywhere. And the mining project is in Eastchester, which is never said anywhere else. Um, mm. But yeah, they kept it in for um, foreign audiences, I guess, because we wouldn't be as familiar with Pertwee. I certainly wasn't. And I had to be told, oh, that's actually Pertwee's voice. And then 
ever I've, I've only seen that scene sort of in clips here and there since it's like oh yeah like i i didn't hear it before but now i do like you got like okay yeah that's that's Pertwee just kind of holding his nose i guess and yeah. getting all a little more I, I think it's a shame it, it... Yeah, because we don't now, even in Britain, I don't think we re- necessarily remember Pertwee that much as a comic actor, as much as we remember him. Doctor Who and, and Wurzel Gummidge. Do you, do you guys know Wurzel Gummidge over here? Do. I don't. I can't speak that's, for all of my that's, fellow countrymen in North America. That's John Pertwee's, it's his other famous role. He went on to do it after Doctor Who. He plays a scarecrow who talks in this very sort of uh, high-pitched uh, West Country accent. Um but yeah, we we loved Wurzel Gummidge and you know, that's the other famous Pertwee role. But the voice sounds nothing like that. So yeah, I, I would lobby to have that scene included, you know, in the official version of Inferno because we need more of alternate fascist Britain. Yeah, I think the problem now is that th- th- there's been so much discussion about the scene. Like you have to wonder, like all <laughs> Doctor Who fans are now here. It will only hear John Pertwee, right? Uh, but then is that who it's for? I don't know. Like you're always trying to get more... Yeah. Uh, uh, more audience so I, I'd say yeah put it back in because it does sort of hammer home I think the isolation they're getting right into that at the end there that things are getting hopeless and that you know kind of the world is doomed in Inferno Earth speaking yeah. of that so this is one of sort of the plot hole that still kind of bugs me and it's not overt but I, it it is the one thing that's that bugs me the most about the episode how does the doctor know uh, in Inferno Earth that the the penetration to the Earth's mantle, uh, well, they call it the core, uh, technically the mantle, will destroy the Earth. Like, it's that they shouldn't do it. Because at some point, he just, you know, at the I think it's the end of episode four, where he's just so desperate for them to stop. And at this point, it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's certainly understandable later in Earth Prime when he's seen the destruction. But he wants them to stop because he thinks it's going to be a disaster. And then... He's he he's also like he's so sure it can't be stopped, you know. Like once they penetrate, oh, there's no force in this earth that'll. Like, the, where does he ever get that information? Uh, my my headcanon on this is going to be that he, you know, during his sideways acid trip, which is very, very psychedelic, super seventies, you know, two thousand and one style, or as close as Doctor Who could get on his budget. Right. That he he sort of has a a maybe a future glimpse there um you know maybe that that affords him a little little uh, going forward in time and seeing the result of that um but yeah or, or maybe he's doing the calculations from his head in his head from the computer that that stolman sabotages and hides the microchip from um well the computer is yeah. the one thing because that that then it's kind of like it sort of makes sense but the only time he was exposed to it was in earth prime and he kind of walks away you know what I mean? Like, he kind of is like, all right, well, I've done all I can to convince you to do whatever you want. But if the stakes are really that high, I mean, we know the doctor would never do that, right? So clearly he needed something else. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's that combined with his trip. I don't know. It's just it's never made clear why he suddenly has this desperate need to stop it before he even has seen what the result will be. Um, yeah. Yep. And then he's uncharacteristically also... giving up hope. As soon as it happens, which you know is probably correct, but I mean, uh, that doesn't. That's, that's also not very doctorish. Also unclear is why he can't take anyone from parallel Earth back with right? him when he returns for the console. 
Um, yeah, like you did of, it, dude. He explains it away. He explains it away by basically saying the universe is going to explode. <laughs> yeah, like there'd be some kind if, of if dimensional paradox. Like it's all techno babble. Yeah. He just says, I can't do it. And I think given sort of sci-fi of the era, I think that was kind of a a thing that was brought up more often. Um, that, oh, this, you know, it, things would break apart. And that's that was actually even a thing in, um, and I think done more believably when they did, and it took them a long time to do it, another parallel Earth episode when they had Rise of the Cybermen and, you know, what they called Pete's World. So when they were jumping dimensions between yeah. the two worlds a bunch of times, they were saying, well, the, the, the barriers between the two dimensions are weakening and it's going to destroy both universes soon. Um, whereas here... <laughs> That there, there's no real mention of that. Um, so I guess that, I mean other than what the doctor says, but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem very well supported. It just seems like this he doesn't sort of want my, to. My problem with it's my problem with parallel world stories in in a lot of different franchises is that the the parallel people kind of sort of accept their parallelness a little too readily. Right. Like oh oh we're dying, but at least you can save the versions of us on on this other world. Like I, I'm, I'm with the uh, you know fascist brigade leader on this one. Like, yeah, screw that other guy. <laughs> you know, why, w- why wouldn't you just sort of, you know, care more about yourself than this? You know, let that other guy blow up. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, they kind of, they kind of just give into it. They, they hear the story and they're like, oh well, I guess we're doomed. So, might as well save alt me. Yeah. Well, speaking of fascist brigade leader, I got to say, of of all yes. the alternate performances, I love Nick Courtney. I think he is so uh, relishing being a bad guy. They all are, but he he's doing it in this way that I thought was very like deliberate and controlled for most of it. And uh, I, I never was not believing he was an alternate version of himself. Um, and he, mm. he, I don't know, maybe it's because he is a military man and he's very, you know, he needs to be sort of confident and arrogant in his own way in our universe that twisting that a little bit making slightly darker choices and you know clipping his language a little more um it's just so it's so him but not him i mean it's it's so bullseye in terms of performance i i my hat is completely off to him um the the eye patch as an indicator that we're in the parallel (laughs) world is i think superior to the goatee of, of the Star Trek movie. Well, the universe. funny thing is, it's it's for facial hair. It's the reverse, right? Because everyone has a mustache or a goatee in our universe. Uh, but then when they go to Inferno Earth, like Stallman is clean shaven, the Brigadier is clean shaven, <laughs> and it's like, oh, like razors are all the the, the rage over there. I guess they didn't have the swinging sixties <laughs> quite in the same way. Uh, well, that was very much a thing in 1984 that everyone was clean shaven and everyone's begging each other for razors. So. You know, maybe that's another example of 1984 influence. Um, but we should talk. Speaking of the eye patch, we should talk about the the eye patch story, which is kind of famous in Doctor Who fan circles. Yeah. So um, apparently, I guess it, this, yes. Was it the Go first ahead. scene where I think it's the first scene where he whirls around the first time we actually see the brigade leader, and he has the eye patch. Uh, when they were shooting that scene, while his the chair was turned around, the whole cast also put on eye patches as a joke for Nick Courtney. <laughs> He turns around, and instead of breaking up laughing, he just does the scene. He just like completely yeah. believably like just just does the character, and everyone else I think ended up cracking up. Um, but you know, it also it, it sounds a little bit like an urban legend, I guess. Or uh, <laughs> it, it, it does. Uh, 
it kind of sounds like sounds like the kind of story that gets conflated over time. Um, and the reason I don't believe that it actually happened during the scene that they filmed is a they they had like a day or two of rehearsal beforehand. So if it was going to happen any time, it would have been there. Uh, B, the director, Douglas Canfield, was sort of renowned for his military efficiency right. and putting the fear of God into people. So I don't think that they would have had a joke like that on set. But i got to tell you, Pete, I, 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 first of all, I was super surprised by the alternate universe twist here. I Because, I, I, again, I mentioned I knew nothing about Inferno. Um, I, I, uh, I loved being surprised by it. It's so rare with with classic who you know the, the story hasn't been repeated and talked about to death to the point where i'd heard about it right um so i, I love the twist i'm jealous of you that the being Iron able Patch to go with... into this one uh completely completely un, unspoiled uh <laughs> that's part of the reason why it really worked for me <laughs> but when when i saw the ipad as soon as i saw the ipad i was like oh the eyepatch story <laughs> like, even i could remember the eyepatch story <laughs> And it's such a good story. I really want it to be true. Um, but, yeah. you know, it just, it makes you giggle, this thought of him turning around and everyone's wearing an eye patch. It's so Monty Python-esque. Yeah. That, uh, which, by the way, was on British TV at the same time. Oh, that's right. Um, but I just, I love it. And, you know, the idea that the whole crew was wearing eye patches as well. And that somehow they'd all managed to sneak them on <laughs> while his chair was turned. Right, I like love it, that idea. It must have been turned for quite a while. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think you're right. It's probably more of a rehearsal thing. Maybe not everybody did it. I, I there must be some version that's true, um, and that's probably been embellished over over the years. Um, but yeah, um, good times. He also has that scar, um, mm -hmm. which there's, it's never explained, but uh, presumably there. Is, I think Nick Courtney at one point said, "Oh yeah, maybe uh, his eye was gouged out in some kind of duel." Um, might have been explained. Yeah, I think the, the director, the director came up with that idea that, that it was some sort of duel that they'd had, uh, and referred to it as the, uh, you know, he, he made some reference to Sherlock Holmes as the, you know, the, the fencing incident when where it happened, the location where it happened. But yeah, yeah, well, just a fascinating little little bit of extra depth. It sure wasn't gouged out by a fire extinguisher, which ends up being the uh, <laughs> the primary weapon they use against the uh, the zombie primord thingies. Um, it's funny, like, I don't know, I'm curious because you were going into this, you know, went into this cold, uh, so to speak, um, you, what did you, were you struck by the number of fire extinguishers in the shots early on? Because it's, <laughs> it's clearly some, they're trying to be sort of, do some sort of subtle foreshadowing, I guess, with all these fire extinguishers. Um, but what did, what did just, you think that about That just it? sort of read to, that, that read as, yeah, this is, you know, health and safety gone mad. <laughs> it's a classic British thing of just just put fire extinguishers there, but they're, they're everywhere in British life anyway. Uh, but I love the idea that it was actually Chekhov's fire extinguisher, right? And that it would go off in the final episode. Um, well, but they were using real fire extinguishers right. in this, and the idea is that the cold kind of kills the primords or disables them. Um, but yeah, it was actually CO two, uh, which is very cold. super cold. It's funny, yeah. like that they um, that the idea that they used real fire extinguishers and obviously for budget issues. It reminds me of this old Flintstones episode where, uh, as a gag, when Fred is like on the set of some uh, some movie they're doing, they're like, "All right, someone bring in the fake rocks." And it's like, "Hey, do you know how much fake rocks cost?" It's like, "All right, we'll use real ones." 
You know, like, <laughs> that's pretty much yes. what happened here. Um, Real fire extinguishers. When I think fire extinguishers of the BBC, I always think of uh, there's an episode of Faulty Towers, the, the Germans, you know, the famous Don't Mention the War episode where Basil is supposed to be knocked out by a fire extinguisher, but it doesn't actually go off in the shot. And they're just like, yeah, screw it. Just, just leave it in. And it's just like this thin jet of nonsense. It's not like a proper fire extinguisher, but it still, you know, knocks Basil Faulty out. So I'm like, you know, fair play to them for actually getting their fire extinguishers to work. And for, for having, you know, a weapon in the episode that isn't guns. Right. Which Although they definitely use guns very a Doctor lot. Who-ish. Um, they use guns. You you see the sort of the flickering on the screen that would happen in, in those days, the, those lines that appear on the screen, yeah. which is very Caves of Androzani-esque. Uh, you know, whenever you fire a gun, there's a lot of machine guns in Caves of Androzani. The last thing you know, on the... The screen gets all those lines Oh, absolutely. The last thing I would say about the fire extinguishers, um, and it's bothered me to this day, honestly, ever since I first saw it, is that the, they don't really pay attention to the continuity of them later in the episode and you see them like there's there's tons of fire extinguishers in main control yet they're for some reason they're only using one and when it runs out they're worried right Mm -hmm. like just go grab another one from the wall like why don't you do that like there's there's a bunch of scenes where i'm wondering like why don't they just do that and then when they get the (laughs) the monster fire extinguisher of the coolant pipe um the effect is really muted i mean you're just you're kind of envisioning this fire hose type thing and it just it just comes out yep. and it's this sort of weak fog smoke that and then you're like okay i guess and it's it's one of those things where uh they talk it up in practice in in theory and then in practice it's just not very good um yeah doctor you'll have the biggest fire extinguisher ever or you know and then yes it's five pounds worth of dry ice yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah but it's yeah, super. BBC. But just generally, like as an action yarn, I thought this was really, really good. It actually had like very James Bondy vibes to me. Uh, there's lots of action. Mm. There's there's like the hero alone against the totalitarian regime, which is you know kind of like Bond behind enemy lines, somewhere in uh, the Iron Curtain or whatever. Um, you know, you have the jerky villain, of course. And Stallman is like he feels like a James Bond villain that's been transported to Doctor Who. Uh, there's chases all over the place. Like he's in the car and getting shot at. Um, he's running around uh, the, the facility, and uh, you know he gets at one point he gets that uh, that heat suit disguise on, which felt yeah. like a very James Bond move. And he sort of pretends to be one of these workers to to sort of infiltrate the the central control at the end. And then of course the whole place blows up, <laughs> which is a, a James Bond yeah. trope. It's like at the end, of the, you know, the whole the villain headquarters always has to blow up. In this case, it also blows up the world. But um, so, yeah, like just really much, very much a James Bond. And we Bond get world. just a few scenes. We get a few scenes, and I wish we'd had more of this, of people kind of wandering around in the apocalyptic devastation. I know. Uh, right, at the, right at the very end, which is very sort of threads, very the day after. Yeah. And uh, it gets very dark, and I love that. And I wish they'd sort of turned that up to eleven. Yeah, it's it's it's. You're almost um, a little confused by it. It's so it's so out of nowhere, and you mm-hmm. kind of wish they had sort of earned that or, or laid some some bits here and there somewhere throughout. They certainly had time to uh, yep. to do that. It comes up, but it does. It's still pretty effective at the end when the the final sort of explosion happens. So a lot of it's aged well. Things that have have not aged well. 
the <laughs> the door handle. We should talk about this. The door handle, oh. which is basically the sonic screwdriver. Right. The single purpose sonic screwdriver. And it's it's not named as such. Single purpose sonic screwdriver, uh, which is basically a garage door opener. Now it is. I, I shall say, you know, as as a complete nerd, I went and looked at the target novelization. It is identified by Terence Sticks as the sonic in the target novelization. In the show, it's just called the door handle. And everyone is just absolutely amazed <laughs> at the super new technology that you can open doors remotely. Right. With it. And specifically the doors of the hut that the doctor's in. It's like a security measure. He has one. Liz has one. Right. Which, is this the only example of Companion having their own Sonic? Other than Sarah later, who has the Sonic lipstick. Mm. Um but uh, it's not even a joke. That's from Sarah Jane Adventures. Uh, but the, um, yeah. In terms of screwdrivers. So so I actually looked up the history of automatic doors. And if you go to theautomaticdoorco.com, they have a short page of it. So I guess automatic doors were a thing uh, invented in 1954. Um, but they didn't really combine them with motion sensors until the late 60s, early 70s. So it wasn't until the early 70s that like supermarkets and everywhere else, I guess, started putting in mm. automatic doors. So I, I, I guess in 19... This is... Uh, the Inferno aired in spring 1970. I, I, I guess it was like really futuristic or somewhat futuristic then. Um, and even though this is... But I mean, it's, it's basically a garage door, yeah. opener, right? Which... Yes, you know, motion sensors come along a lot later, but the garage door opener with a remote was invented in the early 30s in the US. And I think this, this what this tells us is, you know, it's definitely a sign of how, uh, I don't want to say Britain was backward in the 70s, <laughs> no, but it certainly say. wasn't the US consumerist culture that was going on at the same time. Uh, you know, it was sort of very dour and minimalist and drab and, you know, people had mostly black and white TVs and uh, you definitely weren't experiencing the economic boom that the U.S. had. So, yeah, the Doctor could wow people with this super-powered garage this crazy door. future <laughs> technology. Um, you know, what bothers me about it, or what bothered me about it for a moment, was that Liz actually asks him to open the door at one point, so you think that's the one unit, and then she she produces her own unit later. Like, I guess she just couldn't find it in her bag? Mm. I mean... I don't know. Is it? It's just a total power play. It's like she's she's really getting the doctor to do it. Yeah. Thing. Well, there you go. Then then it works. <laughs> the other thing, this is <laughs> striking. Back. I believe this might be the only. It's certainly the first reference to Batman in uh, Doctor Who, and it's kind of like a groan moment. But it is like, oh my god! It's like definitely an OMG moment where Sutton comes in, looks at the console, makes the you know the. The same observation we did earlier, which is that it doesn't look that impressive. And he goes, well, what'd you expect? Uh, some kind of space rocket with Batman at the controls? And you're just like, did he just say Batman? Like, literally, I remember the first time I saw it. I was, did he just say Batman? Did he say Batman? Like, Batman? Really? Batman is a... Batman now officially exists in Doctor Who. Well, Continuity. and in both universes. And not just that, but Batman. <laughs> yes. Well, which makes sense because Batman was uh, invented in the 30s. Okay. So if it diverged um, in the 40s, that would make sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So clearly, you know, fascist Britain is um, diverting its uh, populace with the bread and circuses of Batman comic strips. Yeah. 
We'll um, go with that. Because Batman, kind of a fascist character. So, you know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Makes sense that they'd Settle love Settle down now. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Sorry, Batman fans. So what do you think? Like, this is one of the best things about this episode, and we've covered a lot of it, but one of the best is the dialogue, I think. And there are so many good classic yeah. lines in Inferno. Um, I'll tell you my favorite, but what, what's yours? Do you have a favorite of, of all the lines in the episode? I kind of like the, the sound of the planet screaming, screaming out its rage. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, because that, that sort of, that ties into the whole eco message uh, of it, but but also kind of the, the part that, that definitely holds up well now in 2021, where we are very much experiencing the planet screaming out its rage. Um, and, um, you know, it's that's kind of the, in a nutshell, why we shouldn't do these experiments that are still going on to drill into the, the Earth's crust. Mm. You know, hmm. stop it, people. This, the, I believe there was an Indian experiment recently that almost got down to the the record. The record is something like uh, 1.5 kilometers down. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's not nowhere near. And Yeah. You'd have to go like 20 and, miles uh, or 20 kilometers or yeah. something. It depends out there. There are definitely thinner spots. I don't think East Chester is necessarily yeah. the best choice. But uh, but there's there were... As a side note... There, there is a thing below the crust called the Moho discontinuity, right. or Mohorovicic discontinuity, to give it its full name, which sounds like sounds like Doctor Who techno babble uh, in itself, but it's mm-hmm. real. That's the, the the kind of the cool thing about this episode is it deals with a real thing that we still don't know anything about for sure. No, absolutely. You know, I mean. It, it could be green ooze for, uh, down there, for all we know. And it could maybe destroy the planet if we unearth it, but I find that unlikely. That's kind of one of the things that, like, the fundamentals of this episode don't quite hold up, and they never... It was probably a big reason why it's never referred to again, whether Stallman exi- gas mm-hmm. exists or not, whether or not punching through the Earth's crust would necessarily destroy the Earth. I think it's kind of pretty obvious it wouldn't. I mean, particularly since, like, <laughs> asteroids have hit the Earth, some of the mammoth in size, and may mm. have, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a geologist or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the word term is for a geologist that looks at ancient rock patterns, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there have been impacts that have at least come close, if not penetrated it, and, you know, the Earth is still here. Um, so it is, like, you know, all of that is pretty far-fetched. Uh, but it's it's just to your point, like it's just unknown enough, even to this day, that you could still kind of like, okay, that works. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll, I, the suspension of disbelief yeah. will. It's it's easy to 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 go along for the ride. Yeah, the Earth dies screaming. Um, yeah, it, it totally plays on a, a thing that could still be like you know. Even this week, we had uh, video footage from a volcano in in Iceland right. erupting. And spreading magma everywhere, so it's it gets to this primal fear that we all have of of what's right under our feet. Yeah, absolutely. No, good line. Um, I have a couple. So I think growing up, uh, I think my favorite line is where the doctor says, uh, "So free will is not an illusion after all." And this is at the very end mm. um, when he's come back from you know slipping sideways in time, as he puts it, and. It's it's it. I found it really interesting both for the Doctor as a character because clearly going to other dimensions is new to him, 
and he doesn't really uh, didn't really know what the implications of doing that would be and how he, he realizes yeah. that uh, you really can you know choose something and you're not necessarily locked into that choice and you know maybe that creates another universe or maybe it doesn't but i mean it's like you there are alternatives and i thought that was just kind of a magical moment in in terms of just metaphysics for the show to sort of come out and say that it- it comes from the fact that, that Sir Keith has survived the car right. accident that kills him in the other universe. So I don't necessarily know is that the best uh, explanation of free will because, uh, you know, what what exactly has changed? Well, what exactly? What, like, what, what, yeah, what was what's the, the decision? <laughs> um, no, what's but, the moment of free will? Yeah, it, sh- it shows. But it, I think it just shows him that, you know, you can, uh, on, a, on a physical level, when you look at the physics of it, mm. things can change. Mm. Um, that one resonated with me, with me growing up, but I, I was always fascinated with sort of ontological challenges, parallel worlds. I was a big fan of the Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror. It's a classic. Uh, a lot of people like it. Uh, it's obviously had many, many sequels and novels, comics, and and the show itself in Star Trek. They love going to their, their parallel worlds, um, the Mirror Universe in, in particular. So this, this idea of a dystopian... Um, alternate earth has always been interesting i always also like the show sliders which was uh mm. obviously that was that was the entire premise of that show was going to parallel earths and some were evil some were dystopian there was actually one of the very early episodes of sliders was pandemic earth which uh we have just lived through the last year mm-hmm. uh, but it was i remember being a, the big nerd that i am thinking about that episode when uh, the pandemic really set in last year, and that like wow, we're we're pandemic Earth now. There's there might be some alternate Earth where which is normal Earth, but um, that's us. Yeah, where someone made a different decision to not go into a bad game. Right, exactly. Um, so that 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 was a great line for me. But honestly, this time around, the line that stood out for me the most was when the doctors sort of really trying to implore uh, a fascist Liz to think for herself, and he says. Whatever they've taught taught you in this bigoted world, you've still got a mind of your own. Uh, I thought that mm. was that was really good. Uh, you know, just the, especially you know if you think of Doctor Who as a kids show, um, you know yeah. this idea like you need to think for yourself. Like and that being a critical thinker and getting your own information is crucial to anyone's growth as a human being. Uh, I know it's a very sort of simple and and maybe obvious message, but. Um, said in this way to this character uh, I think made it resonate probably more than that message has ever uh, come through in Doctor Who and I really really liked it yeah absolutely and it's sort of the you know it, it doesn't beat you over the head with a message this this episode yeah. but but lines like that just kind of yeah they, they, they land and it doesn't feel like you know we're, we're being talked down to so yeah like it yeah so absolutely so um what would have happened if the evil plan had actually worked? Oh wait, <laughs> that's actually that's actually happens. Yep. Uh, For the third time running, mm-hmm. this I you know I'm kind of getting a little scared of the randomizer here because the third time running it has taken us to a, a Doctor Who episode where the evil plan e- either actually works uh, or or you know we we see it working briefly in an, an alternate version right. of time. Yeah. So, 
So we don't yeah. we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to conjecture. I guess you could argue, um, you know, had it happened in our Earth, um, what what sort of differences would have been? Could the Doctor have worked harder for it to to reverse it? I don't know. Um, there is an interesting side note. Again, this is getting into arguably non-canonical parts of the Doctor Who universe, but apparently in the novels some of the leadership of fascist earth uh, survives and they end up going <laughs> to a base on the moon and becoming sort of uh, an evil force for uh, some other sort of story that, that, that happens, which is kind of an interesting development. Um, presumably... Yeah. Obviously in this, in this side universe that the moon is not an egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if it is, you know, <laughs> you could still build a base on an egg. Um <laughs> Oh, good times. oh boy, Kill the Moon. One of my least favorite Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, so obviously we love this. Did, did we love it? Uh, is it? Is it our favorite Doctor Who episode that we've that we've story that we've uh, rewatched? I'll, so I'll far? tell you this: it is for me, and it's close. I mean, yeah. I did love Dark Water, Death in Heaven, but uh, Inferno edges yeah. it out. I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed revisiting Inferno. Um, I watched it over three nights. It's seven episodes, uh, and I, you know, I think two chunks of three, one chunk of two, and every time I kind of wanted to keep watching. I was getting tired, and I had to go to bed, but I was like, "Oh wow, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow night, where I can I can just take play, just watch this adventure some more." I didn't want it to end. Yeah, uh, didn't feel like seven episodes. Yeah, it... I, I know it's easy for old Doctor Who to go like, "Oh, it's plotting," and and there's certainly arguably chunks of this episode you could do without, but it didn't feel long to me. Yeah, I was. I loved every minute of it. It does. It sticks with you in an interesting way, and I think that pyramids, a way that pyramids of Mars didn't. And um, I don't think it deserves its its you know lowish spot on the the official Doctor Who magazine uh, rankings. Uh, I think it's number eighteen. Hmm. Whereas pyramids of Mars is number eight. It's respectable. But I think it it, def it deserves to be above Pyramids of Mars. Interestingly, I, I mentioned last week that uh, Pyramids of Mars is sliding down the rankings, mm. as um, you know, as as Doctor Who magazine does more polls of the entire history of Doctor Who stories. Um, Inferno is doing the opposite; it's going up. Well, I support so, the, those developments. Yeah, I yeah. I definitely would put this at at number one of the ones we've talked about so far. I would definitely say it's in my top five, probably my top five. Um, so, yeah. yeah, Inferno, like in our Dalek Ogron, yeah, two thumbs up, um, <laughs> uh, rating system. Uh, I would. It's 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 the Emperor Dalek right now. <laughs> two Daleks up, way up. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Randomizer. Um, also interesting that the. You know, we talked about this last week uh, in, at the beginning of Pyramids of Mars. The Doctor's like, you know, I, d I don't want to work for UNIT anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to run away. Uh, you know, I'm the Brigadier's sidekick. I'm just going to run away from all that. And here he is five years earlier doing exactly the same thing, trying to run away from the Brigadier, um, insulting the Brigadier to his face at the very end, right. and then running away. So it's it's just, it's... You know, the Doctor and the Brigadier, it's its kind of a, almost a Brokeback Mountain, I can't quit you situation. <laughs> Absolutely. He's like, just keeps coming back. I gotta back. say, in terms of the Doctor-Brigadier conflicts, this is, like, pretty trivial. Like, it's its a—it's more of a funny moment that's kind of manufactured yeah. at the end. Uh, 
by the by the brigadier being very unsympathetic with what he's just gone through. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really just played for laughs and rightly so. Whereas I feel like, and maybe hopefully we'll get to it at some point, like the the problem they had two episodes previous at the end of Doctor Who and the Silurians would would have been much more of a substantive problem. Uh, and I you kind of wonder honestly why the Doctor didn't just ditch the Brigadier unit after that story, because you know the, mm. they essentially just blow up the Silurians, even though the Doctor has already expressed you know. They're clearly intelligent. Um, they're clear, you know. They clearly have great technology, um, and they're they're uh, the last of their people. And um, like I, I'm, it's you know, you really like we'll get to it when we get to it. But I mean, you're stunned that that now you're you because he said something mean to you. You're leaving like and him destroyed an entire committing genocide two episodes previous. That's okay. Like <laughs> what? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dis- discontinuity the, is the lifeblood of Doctor Who. Indeed. Oh, boy. Well, may- maybe that is where the randomizer will send it us could. next. Fingers crossed. Shall we, shall we More seven-episoders. <laughs> All right, do you have the technology? Do you <laughs> have the randomizer ready? I have our uh, reference material ready. By the way, we might want to recap what we're yep. doing here. Um, every yep. time uh, we close our commentary of an episode, we pick the next episode we're going to go to. And as we said at the beginning, we're determined to do this in random order. And uh, we have some wonderful technology that will pick uh, a random number uh, uh, between 1 and 298, which is, by our reckoning, the number of stories, individual stories. Um, Actually, 297. Uh, 297, right? Yeah, it's... it's 298 in the spreadsheet because uh, an unearthly child is, is number two. Right, yeah. So we have 297 just, stories. Know, it, and yeah. Chris, what is the wonderful technology we use to determine random numbers? We use random.org, uh, who, if they would like to sponsor the show, would certainly welcome it. Um, they, they do lottery drawings, uh, you know, various other... any All your randomness needs comes from random, random.org. And they uh, what I love is that they base it on atmospheric noise. Uh, which is the most doctorish way to get a random number online. Otherwise, it's just like an algorithm guessing at a random number, uh, which isn't, you know, the, the doctor wouldn't stand for that. So we use proper randomness. Nice. And uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to hit generate. All right. And got... uh, here's where we insert the TARDIS noise or the Geronimo noise. Uh, you, you've got the list of the, uh, the I'll episodes, surprise you this I'm week. I'm going to hit generate. <laughs> I look forward to it. All right. Three, two, one. Adolzy. 274. Oh my, we're getting late. 274. The Pyramid at the End of the World and the Lie of the Land, a two-parter. Oh boy. Oh, I was not a fan of those. Well, we'll see. Um, Now that we've had the (laughs) the original pyramids, now that we've covered those, we're coming back. And maybe this is is the logic of the randomizer. It wants us to knock off all the pyramid episodes early. Pyramids that are definitely on Earth. Uh, The randomizer loves Capaldi. It does. Um, That's true. I think we're, we're starting to see that. Um, this is this is and, the latest uh, of yeah. uh, Capaldi episodes. This is late Capaldi. This is uh, Capaldi and Bill, the Doctor and Bill and Nardole. Um, yeah, yeah, and a and a fake regeneration, mm. which is oh. But we'll get into that next week. And uh, right. yeah, 
Thank you. Thank you, Pete, for another excellent yeah, discussion. Yeah, thank you, Chris. This has been really, really fun revisiting uh, Inferno. Uh, and it was really, you know, like I say, it was nice to live vicariously through you on seeing it the first time. But having not seen it in something like 30 years, oh, it was, it was just, it felt really good. Yep, yeah, we're not going to match up to next yeah. week. It might take us a while to get we'll, get a banger yeah, like that again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's been great. But, you know, we're, we're doing all of Doctor Who in random order, so we got we got to take the rough with the right. smooth. And thank you, everyone, for going on this journey with us. Thank you for listening. Uh, and again, we are a podcast. <laughs> we're called Pull to Open. We're wherever you find your podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on Google. We're on it all. Uh, please subscribe. Add, tell your friends to subscribe. Uh, leave a review. Yes, we are on the TikToks. We're on TikTok at Pull to Open once again. Uh, we're having lots of fun there with excerpts from the show. Why don't you go ahead and you know drop us a line either there or on any of the socials and you know let us know what you think. If you want us to uh, do any TikTok in particular, um, let us know, and uh, we will talk to you uh, uh, again next week. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye.